The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. The American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Ziptility, helping utilities capture more, better, and accurate data from the field. By Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions. And by Xylem, Let's Solve Water. This is Session 163. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. We have a great show for you today. We have Peter Lake, the chairman of the Texas Water Development Board, and he does a great job. He lays out a lot of different things. We also go off into... uh, some areas where Peter thinks that private capital has a great opportunity to play a role, at least in Texas water and probably elsewhere. Uh, it's a really fascinating interview, uh, and I, you will not be disappointed uh, by this interview. It's a long one, so I'm going to be quick in the intros. Uh, we also have Bluefield on tap. Uh, Reese Tisdale gets into some corporate water sustainability programs, talks about how they're doing, what's, and you know, gives some, some background on those corporate water sustainability programs. Very interesting stuff, as Reese always brings to us. Uh, before we get to Bluefield on tap, before we get to the great interview with Peter Lake, a little housekeeping first and foremost, another hearty thank you to our sponsors. Again, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, Interra and Xylem, a great set of sponsors. So thank you very much to them. Also, if you work for any one of these sponsors or if you work with any one of these sponsors, do me a favor and just let your contact, let your boss know that you really appreciate and are proud of the fact that your company or organization supports the Water Values Podcast and the thought leadership we bring to you twice a month. If you're interviewing for a job, what better way to show the interview, uh, the the interviewer, you know, that you're up to speed and up to date and interested in the water sector than by saying you listen to the Water Values Podcast and you're and you're, you're thankful that their company supports the Water Values Podcast. It's just a great way to let our sponsors know that you appreciate them because I certainly do. Thank you so much. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast directory you access the podcast on. That'd be greatly appreciated and will help with help others find out about the podcast. Um, we got a couple more uh, five-star ratings uh, over the past couple of weeks and some great reviews. But as I indicated earlier, it's a long podcast today, so we're going to defer uh, talking about those until the next uh, next episode. Now it's time for our Bluefield on Tap session, so let's take it away. We- well, Reese, welcome to another session of Bluefield on Tap. How you doing? I'm good, Dave. How about yourself? Doing. Right. It's, it's, it's we're almost February. Yeah, it will. It, by the time this is released, it is February. So uh, <laughs> it's hard to believe. 2021. Here we come. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, what's on your mind? What's 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 uh, what's Bluefield looking at these days? So, you know, off to a good start. So one of the main things uh, that's come out recently, we've looked at uh, corporate sustainability. You know, it's given that it's 2020 sort of at the close of the year, we started looking across 10 different uh, industries globally to get a better idea where they stand versus their 
environmental or sustainability targets. And so we looked at everything from, so we looked at the 10 market leaders in industries such as beauty and personal care, food and beverage, mining, automotive, um, fashion, oil and gas, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, technology, and power. So I just listed them all pretty quickly, sort of trying to figure out where they stand in, in their water management practices. Yeah. And what, what do you find in, in that review? So it's really interesting. So to see where they stand. So, it, you know, one thing is key takeaway is the B2B industries. So or B2C, should I say, the, the business to consumer like beauty and personal care and food and beverage in particular, they stand out um, much higher than a lot of the other other industries. And we weighted the industries or measured them on their water usage and their tracking and reporting. So have they put out targets? Are they measuring it? And where do they stand? We also looked at their water use intensity. So how much water do they actually use? So obviously mining may use a lot of water. Power uses a lot of water. Uh, We looked at their sustainability goals. So where do they stack up against against the other industries and how are they they measured? And then uh, lastly, What's the progress? So some industries are actually falling. Uh, in fact, some have fallen short, um, partly because they've raised their goals along the way. And so they're even further behind. But also, it's maybe it's just talk and they don't feel it's as important. So That's interesting. Now, do you think the B2C is because of kind of, um, you know, kind of a marketing angle? I mean, what do, what do you think is driving the B2C is to be, you know, more, more water focused. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's kind of, that's our, that's our thinking in, in our report that we're about to put out is exactly that from a brand image. Uh, it's more important. So if you're a beauty care product, you know, people do look more closely at that. I think we've seen over the years, companies focusing on really on the environment as a whole. And, you know, one aspect of that is water. And, you know, they need to convey that message to customers that they, one, care about the environment, which includes their water, water usage. And also, you know, and this is really about water usage. It doesn't necessarily account for uh, their water or wastewater discharge. Um, That's one thing. Obviously, they should just be complying with the law, right? Yeah. If they have permits. So we're not measuring that specifically. Okay. Uh, And then the other thing I'm kind of curious about is... Uh, is, did your review kind of look at, is it just use in their actual, uh, process or is this kind of trickling down through the supply chain? Well, actually that's where it gets kind of complicated. So when you look at, um, some are easier to look at than others. So, and it's very obvious what kind of water they're using, what their volumes of water and what their water management practices are like power, for instance, pretty straightforward. You can attach one to the other. Fashion is the one, is a standout. It's really hard to do that. And mainly because, you know, these brands, they rely on third-party vendors, right? So they're manufacturing clothing or shoes, whatever it might might be. I don't want to call anybody out specifically. But they are, um, it's hard to put your finger on that. So there's, it's very opaque making under, making the understanding of that those of fashion, for instance, that much more difficult. They may say they're hitting their targets, 
but that may just be at the brand level and not of their supply chain to your point. Yeah. Yeah. And just curious where, uh, what's, what, what was kind of the source data you looked at? Was it like reports to CDP or was it some other reporting agency or what, 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 what were you kind of gauging this off of? Yeah. So a lot, a lot of these companies, they do, you know, their environmental sustainability reporting, they either do it every year or every couple of years. So we went directly to the companies. You're right. CDP is, is a firm out of Europe that does look at that. They look across all other sectors and industries, um, but we went straight to the companies ourselves um, and to the extent we could find it. And some don't always reveal exactly what they're doing, and maybe that's on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last question. Um, when when you look at sustainability indices and things of that nature, a lot of people think, you know, kind of solid waste, recycling, uh, energy, uh, where do you think water's stacking up in that uh, in that sustainability mix? I think more broadly speaking, and this comes you know, when you look at uh, discussions, whether it be at the World Economic Forum or other um, among senior leader leaders and across all industries, water seems to be rising as a greater concern, partly because of climate to operational risk. I think it gets lost historically in the in sort of the the um, you know climate change meaning emissions. That's emissions typically you know is it green or not or companies using renewable power. But I would argue, in many cases, you know the water aspect is even more critical. And I would say that's also just you know stepping away to just the corporates. I would say infrastructure as a whole in the U.S. Um, specifically where you know, the water network is out of sight, right? We turn on our taps and it works. Um, we expect that if companies, it's the same thing. There's an expectation that it's always there. Um, and also politically speaking, that it is not always the sexiest infrastructure. You know, I think politicians, not to be cynical, I think they like to stand in front of windmills and big, huge infrastructure bridges that, you know, are more demonstrative of of hard work, whether that's fair or not to water. No, I don't think so. I think um, this is one way that water is being elevated to a higher higher discussion among uh, senior leader leaders, and that's increasingly demonstrated in these sustainability reports, which we just looked at. All right. Well, that, that, great stuff as always. Thank you so much, Reese. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. Appreciate your coming on. Are you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, listen, we just put out a digital water report. I think, did I mention that last time? So it's hit the shelves. We've got a $92 uh, billion dollar, uh, digital water market in the U.S., which every I think all your listeners, or at least some of your listeners, would be interested in. So uh, everybody should reach out to Bluefield. To <laughs> all right, good deal. Thanks so much, Reese. All right, Dave, take well, it easy. Uh-huh, bye. As always, great job by Reese. Uh, terrific. Really appreciate uh, everything he does for the podcast. Uh, now it's on to the feature interview with Texas Water Development Board Chairman Peter Lake. Let's get that water flowing. Well, Chairman Lake, so glad to have you on the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. How you doing? Doing well. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. Great. Uh, and your name's Peter Lake. Do you, is it okay if I call you Pete during this interview? Terrific. Now, um, uh, could you talk to us a little about uh, your background and how you kind of came to the water industry? Well, with a uh, last name like Lake, I was <laughs> obviously born for it. Uh, 
I've, I've promised that's the first time I've, and only time I've ever used that line. Uh, <laughs> but at the, at the end of the day, uh, we're, we're all interested in water, uh, whether we know it or not. And my, but my most direction uh, connection to water and to the Texas Water Development Board is really through my financial background. Uh, in a past life, I was a bond trader on the Chicago Board of Trade. And given that the Texas Water Development Board is in many ways a big infrastructure bank, when they were considering this appointment, uh, the governor's office wanted somebody with bond market experience. And I was thrilled and honored to have the opportunity. Oh, terrific. So uh, can you give us a little background on the Texas Water Development Board? What, you know, what, what, what does the Texas Water Development Board do? The Texas Water Development Board is the state agency responsible for planning and financing future water supply for the state of Texas. Uh, we're a state agency uh, overseen by three board members, and we are built on a model of water science, water planning, and water financing. Uh, we, we perform those functions to make sure the state really has the water supply it needs uh, for the future. And that, that involves everything from identifying the water resources we've got to long-term planning, uh, making sure that all parts of the state know the water resources they have now and what they're going to need in the future, and that the financial resources they need to turn those water projects water plans in the water projects are available. Uh, we work with entities across the state, cities, utilities, river authorities, counties, uh, any public uh, political subdivision in the state is a potential partner. And we've got about 300 people here in Austin. And, and overall, it's a fascinating and, and interesting place to work with a very important mission. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned you feel the financial background um, seat on the Texas Water Development Board. What are the, you know, kind of what's the makeup of the other board members? State law requires that the board, three members of the board, have backgrounds respectively in finance, engineering, and law. So my counterparts, uh, Director Jackson and Director Pop, are an engineer and an attorney, respectively. Uh, which is which is a fantastic makeup because when you think about water issues and and all things all things water, those are three the three important components: uh, legal, engineering, and financial. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree that whenever whenever you take a case before you know our our uh, regulatory commission that you, you get the legal, you get the lawyer, you have a financial witness and an accounting witness uh, and an engineering witness at a minimum. So uh, I, I agree. Yeah, it, it's been very valuable to have uh, those uh, Director Jackson, Director Pop. Uh, it's it's one of the few boards in the state government that's full time. So we're here, uh, we're here every day, uh, full time, full time role. And so having having those complementary skill sets and backgrounds has been proven to be tremendously valuable. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got a lot of stuff I'd like to ask you about the uh, Texas Water Development Board. The first of which is the um, uh, State Water Implementation Fund for Texas. Uh, could you give us some background on that? It's I, th- I think that's kind of the one of the things that uh, you know people see it um, shortened to SWIFT, right? So uh, and and that you see that all over the place. So so can you talk a little about the uh, the SWIFT fund? You bet. That's very much our flagship infrastructure financing program. And it, uh, it, it's the, 
very much is the, the third component, that financial component of our uh, underlying model. Now, the SWIFT program was established in 2013 uh, to provide the financial resources needed to implement all of the water supply projects that we're going to need across the state of Texas. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's part of an integrated, comprehensive program. Uh, and I, as far as I know, uh, we're one of the few water infrastructure programs in the, in the world that have this kind of integrated model that directly links the water science, our technical folks identifying, quantifying uh, the water supply that we've got. That's aquifers, stream flows, bays, estuaries, all of that. Uh, and then that water science uh, is the foundation for our state water plan, um, which is a, a regional planning process uh, that looks ahead 50 years at the local and regional level, folks get around the table, identify the water resources they've got now, look ahead to see how much water they're gonna need in the future. And if there's gonna be a, a shortage, they're gonna be short. Uh, they work on identifying water supply strategies to cover that difference. Uh, and once they've identified those strategies, that can be anything from a new reservoir to groundwater wells, to uh, pipelines, desalination facilities, uh, smart meters, uh, smart infrastructure, a any and all of that is eligible as long as it's in the state water plan. And then that's where the SWIFT program comes in. Once those plans are identified, vetted at the regional level and then the state level, then those, those plans are eligible for the SWIFT program. And that's really the what I call the incentive financing uh, to, to encourage folks water utilities, et cetera, to use our science, QC, you know, QC science, participate in the regional planning process, check with their neighbors, coordinate with their neighbors, consider regional projects. And then uh, once they've done that, they're eligible for that SWIFT financing where we, we use those financial resources in the SWIFT program to pay a substantial part of their interest costs over the 20 or 30 year loan term it, it's been around, uh, we, we've, it's been in, in process and in, up and running for the last uh, five years. And in those five years, the SWIFT program itself has financed $6.5 billion worth of water supply infrastructure in Texas. And as part of that, the SWIFT program has provided just over a billion dollars in interest rate savings and, and to our underlying borrowers. And, and in five years, I think that's, that's a tremendous amount of benefit uh, going, going to local entities uh, as, as that incentive to participate in our planning process, use good science, uh, participate in regional planning. So it's, it's been a tremendous success. Uh, we, we've been very pleased with that. But as you know, uh, water work never stops. So it's <laughs> uh, but it's, it's really been a tremendous success. Yeah, it, it certainly sounds like, it, especially in this day and age when affordability is such a big issue, um, you know, a billion dollars in savings over five years, you know, that, that translates into reduced water bills uh, for the, the, the end users who are, you know, the, of the, the systems that are taking advantage of your financing. Um, I, I, I would like to, to, you mentioned regional planning. And that's because that's kind of a hot issue. And I'm just kind of curious about uh, how how uh, 
Texas goes about the regional aspect of that? I mean, are you encouraging systems to work together? Are you encouraging consolidation? Are you, you know, what, what does the regional, uh, uh, regionalism plan look like in Texas? We've got a model that is really built from the ground up. Uh, we have, we break the state into 16 different regional planning groups and, we really administer the planning process, Dave. We, we never want to be telling people at the local level, uh, this is what Austin thinks you should be doing. Uh, so we really administer, we, we require them to use our science, our data, uh, so we know that, that there's good quality uh, inputs. But the regional process is, is, is built around getting all the water providers in that area around the table and evaluating the strategies there's a and there are two important parts of that one there's a voting mechanism so that everybody around the table is required to vote to get your project into the state water plan Uh, and you can imagine how that encourages cooperation regional coordination uh, and those kind of things and the second second important component is that we require everyone to use what we call a unified costing model, which we provide and, and sponsor. And that, also, that, that enables folks to see all of the projects under consideration on an apples-to-apples basis. And that, of course, encourages people to take a real hard, honest look at what it's going to cost. I'm speaking about affordability. Uh, what is this project going to cost? We really have to look hard at the economics. Uh, and so once the, those 16 regions come up with their water supply strategies, it's really been vetted and, and evaluated. And, and that's where a lot of the discussion about regionalization takes place. Uh, but then above and beyond that, once it comes to the state level and is under consideration for the SWIFT program, uh, of course, we have, the SWIFT program is, is a, has tremendous financial resources, but it's not unlimited. So we have a prioritization system to essentially rank uh, projects to see who, who's first in line for the for the money and regional projects are are designated and highlight as higher priority uh, when evaluating who gets swift financing so there's several several layers of it but it's we we, we never direct it or require it but we strongly incentivize it yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's the the tack I'm I'm seeing that's probably the most helpful and most useful right? because people don't like to be forced into that consolidation. So offering the carrot rather than the stick, I think is is probably a wise move on your part. You mentioned the six and a half billion in infrastructure uh, financing. I mean, how, what kind of challenge is it like to go to market with that? How do you how do you um, how do you, how do you go out and kind of market that to the to the institutional and other investors that you're you're selling that bond portfolio to? and that's a lot of capital in a short amount of time. And uh, the, we, we obviously couldn't do that without the broader investor community. And so it, it's no small task. But when, we're, when we talk about Texas water, we're really talking about the story of Texas. Uh, there are a lot of pieces that go into making the Texas economic machine work as well as it does, but water's the linchpin of it all. Uh, and as you know, it's, it's an essential service. There's, there's no substitute for water. Uh, you, you can tolerate a few potholes on the road. You can you can take the bus instead of use the airport. Uh, folks can switch between coal, gas, solar, wind uh, for power. But well, the water is the one thing you absolutely cannot go without. Uh, and so ensuring that Texas has the water it needs for the future it wants is a critical job. 
Uh, and our efforts to ensure that are something that investors want to be a part of. Uh, Texas works on water, and we make Texas water work. And we think that's been a compelling story for investors, uh, something they want to participate in. Uh, and, and so far, they've been very receptive to it. Okay, so it, it, it is what the, what the investors are looking for then is kind of economic security. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Um, investors in general want to participate in a, in a positive story, whether that's a company, uh, a government initiative, uh, whatever it is. They they want to know their resources are being being used and and, and levered for a, a positive movement forward. Uh, and obviously, water is, is a, a big part of that, doing it in the model, providing water under the model and the framework that I described earlier is something they like a lot. And of course, they love the essential service component, right? It's not, it's something that's always a priority. Uh, No matter what the weather is doing, water is always important. Flood, drought, doesn't matter. Uh, And of course, there's also the element of creditworthiness. They want to make sure they're paid back, principal and interest. Uh, And we we spend a lot of time sharing this, uh, how we go about our credit evaluations. Uh, when we, we go out to the broader investor universe uh, and, and sell our bonds, we take those proceeds and, and obviously lend them out to our borrowers, the, the water providers around the state. And we, we go through great lengths to, sh- to tell investors and get investors comfortable with our credit process, which includes evaluating environmental, engineering, legal, financial components of our underlying borrowers. Uh, We have a very robust process that evaluates all of those things for any entity that that is going to be accessing our our financial programs. Uh, And even after we lend money out to our borrowers and they're they're building a treatment plan and expanding a pipeline, et cetera, uh, we have a, a separate financial compliance team that is available to them and helps monitor those loans uh, for the for the term of that loan uh, on an ongoing basis. So so very robust processes, very uh, belt and suspender security for for our investors, which as you can imagine gives them a, a great deal of comfort. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, uh, I know the rating agencies, there's been a lot of talk over the last year and a half, and I think even um, uh, at least Moody's, is it? Uh, they implemented uh, one of the factors for their, their credit rating is, uh, you know, kind of climate change responses. Have you seen any, um, any uh, you know, questions from the rating agencies on cl- impact of climate change or anything of that nature? We have, uh, and as you know, ESG is, is a hot topic in the investor world right now anyway. Um, when, when, it, when it comes to climate change, we re- really, that's where the strength of the regional ground up state water planning process comes in. We're never making those kind of decisions at the state level. Uh, we rely on the locals who know their resources, know their needs, uh, and know what's best for their particular part of the state to make decisions about building their water future. Um, and that's, that's been a very robust system. Uh, in water, there's no silver bullet. And in Texas, there's, there's, no, there's, there's no part of the state that's the same. Uh, so one size fits all solution uh, for, for, for climate change or anything else uh, is very hard to come by. And so we, we really lean on on local leadership uh, and the participants in that state water plan. 
and, and can't thank them enough for their service. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, one other question, I think that it was just kind of going running through my mind as you were, you were talking about these factors and the economic security was coverage ratios. I, I had a guest on, uh, in 2019 who talked about coverage ratios, uh, and, and during that interview, he, I was kind of surprised when, when, uh, they, he mentioned 1.05 is the threshold for, for rate action. And I'm just kind of curious, what are you seeing in Texas as the threshold for rate action on a coverage ratio? Uh, we, we don't, we haven't seen, uh, any single metric that drives rating agency, uh, evaluation. Uh, so like for, for example, the SWIFT program, uh, was founded with a $2 billion uh, cash or capitalization uh, from the state's rainy day fund. Uh, and that's been invested uh, over at the state controller's office uh, since 2013. And, and, and they manage that portfolio, and, and that's invested very much in a, in a professional set of stocks, bonds, real estate, et cetera. Uh, and, but that's that's the backbone of our SWIFT program, and so that's a very different rating agency decision than say evaluating our state revolving funds, which we also manage. Okay. Uh, so we, you know, so there's not there's not really a single metric that we've run across. Uh, it's it's a constant conversation, and, and they're they're very thorough, and they do a very good job of of making sure they know what they're looking at. Um, so. No, no single metric, uh, but something we pay a lot of attention on, and our our finance team does great work interacting with the rating agency and our counterparts over at the state controller. Terrific. Terrific. So what about P3s? How, how do those factor into uh, uh, how how the investment portfolio is sold and the ratings and things of that nature? So we, we haven't seen a lot of what I would call traditional P3s. Uh, the TWDB can only directly lend money to public entities, public subdivisions, uh, but we're, of course, open to partnering uh, with political subdivisions and public entities that are part of P3s. Uh, the, the bigger issue I've seen is that the, given that most water supply and water infrastructure in the United States is, is done by public entities, they have access to tax-exempt bond markets and so it's just it's just really hard for a private investor to offer a lower cost of capital. Um, there's there you know by definition it's you can't get cheaper money than municipal bonds. Uh, so so we haven't seen a lot of the traditional P3s, but I'm very very interested in and very hopeful that we'll see some more uh, activity in P3s that involve a risk transfer. Uh, from the public side to the private side, especially as it relates to regulatory risk or technology risk. Uh, you know, the, the financial side is, is pretty well taken care of with the municipal bond markets, but technology and, and regulatory risk is something that uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to have the private sector take that on and from from the state of Texas perspective, we're very happy to reward that successful, when successful transfer of risk uh, to the private side, but we don't, we really don't like having risk put on taxpayers and, and on our rate base. Uh, for example, like uh, 
one thing I've spent some time thinking about are reservoir permits. Uh, currently, we're financing the first major reservoir in Texas in the last quarter century. But as you know, reservoir permits are, are hard to come by, and they require a long time, a lot of resources. And, and really, when public entities go through that permitting process, they do it once. It's very expensive, and it has a binary outcome. They're either successful or not, and then they're, they never do it again. Uh, so I think there's an opportunity there potentially for, for a private uh, a, a private entity potentially to come in and uh, look at a broader portfolio of reservoir permits, uh, develop some institutional knowledge, develop some efficiencies, and of course they, you know, in that in that example they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't get every reservoir permit that they uh, that they apply for, but the state would be happy to reward them for the ones that are successful. Uh, brackish desalination, brine disposal. Uh, is another big challenge we're facing right now. We have tremendous uh, brackish groundwater resources in Texas, but uh, that the technology and permitting risk around developing those those water resources are, are significant. Uh, so we'd, we'd love to see more private sector entities uh, bring new technology to bear, helping address and navigate the regulatory hurdles. Uh, so that's that's really where we see the opportunity on the, on the P3 side. Yeah, those I I appreciate you kind of giving some concrete examples of uh, the technology and regulatory risks, because um, otherwise they just kind of like hang out there in space. You know what I mean? Because um, uh, <laughs> you're like, well, yeah, technology and regulatory risk. Okay. Uh, what what about you? You know, I want to I want to leverage your financial background here and talk about. Um, what the water sector can learn from the the financial sector. I mean, what what do you think are the greatest lessons that the the, the water sector can can get from the financial side of the world? Uh, well, I, I think the biggest thing is getting a better grasp of how to value water, truly value water. And I know you you hear probably as much as I do or more uh, people talking about the value of water. But it's 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 been hard to get a real concrete uh, grasp of that. Uh, of course, you're familiar with the famous diamond water paradox. Uh, you know, unless you're getting married or Valentine's Day, uh, a diamond's not worth much, but it's very expensive. Uh, and of course, water is very cheap, but the most valuable resource on the planet. And what it comes down to is, is three components: the price of your water, you know, your water bill. Uh, the cost of your water, what it costs to acquire, treat it, deliver it, and then the value of water, the value derived from using water at any given point in time, and how those three variables interact. Uh, most people know what their water bill is. Very few people know the cost of water, and it's very difficult to find any, any consistent concrete metric on the value of water, and especially how that value changes over time. But if the more we assign and recognize the value of water, the more opportunities there are to, to extend the use of the resource, enhance the overall ecosystem. Um, you know, planting season, seasons are different planting than fracking season. Uh, oil and gas goes 12 months a year. Agriculture only needs water certain times a year. How, how can we arbitrage that difference? Uh, data centers and ship fabrication plants place a huge premium on 
uninterruptible, ultra pure water. They don't need a lot of it, but they need it, and it needs to be very high quality. Uh, are there insurance products that could be built around that that dynamic that benefit the broader ecosystem? Uh, and there, there, there's a role for public and private entities here. Uh, we at the Texas Water Development Board, we finance water infrastructure, but we do not finance speculative infrastructure, uh, risk infrastructure, because we, we don't we don't want that risk on our taxpayers and our rate base, but we would love to see private investors step in, but they need to see if, what their investment is going to generate and where the value is and an opportunity for return on that investment. Uh, when, you, when you truly assign value to the resource and acknowledge that the value changes over time, in a drought, water is priceless, but during a flood, uh, not only does water really have no value, but it probably has a negative value. It's destroying people and property. I'll, I'll, you know, not only am I not going to pay you for another gallon of water, I'll pay you to get it out of here. Uh, <laughs> so, the, you know, there's a tremendous difference uh, in the value of water at different points in time. So the more we can do to recognize that and start capturing uh, the opportunities that come with that, I think the better the ecosystem will be overall. Uh, one one of my favorite examples is Israel introducing fully priced water in the I think the late 2000s, and of course, as we all know, or we hear often in the industry, water is underpriced, right? It, it uh, and the Israelis went ahead and priced it at, at its full full freight, so the price spiked uh, the first year and the second year, but as people responded to that price incentive, uh, their behavior changed. And the price started moving down. And so today, the price of water in Israel is lower than it was before they implemented uh, fully, fully costed water. And Israel's a global leader in water conservation, technology, and desalination. Uh, and so, so by assigning value to that water, really, really, and really meaning it, Israel incentivized folks to, to treat it like a valuable resource. And I think the water industry just, at least in the U.S., is just starting to uh, touch the tip of the iceberg on this. Uh, and really just, I don't know what the answer is, but there's nothing but opportunity ahead. Yeah, I, I am curious about how, how that gets implemented uh, in the U.S. Um, with our varied systems of water rights and repairing rights and all this other stuff. I mean, have you have you given any thought to... You know, is this is this some um, uh, governance or structural issue that that surrounds these? You know, the the value of water. Well, I, Dave, I think about it all the time, but I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's a work in progress, but uh, and I think I, I do think there's there's something to be said for not necessarily coming up with uh, a legal or governance silver bullet, but maybe maybe coming up with or, or, or setting up an ecosystem where individual stakeholders are, are enabled to find those solutions for themselves. That, that may very well be at the local local level. Um, you know, we have some river authorities in Texas that have uh, senior you know, senior and subordinated pricing uh, depending on uh, on availability, which starts to bring that economic value of water at a point in time into play. Uh, we have uh, several uh, 
districts on the Rio Grande that essentially have surface water markets, uh, the El Paso uh, County Irrigation District and then the TCQ Watermaster down uh, in the southern part of the river. Uh, and what you see, you see interesting phenomena happening there. Uh, for example, in the agriculture space, you have a lot of row crop farmers uh, planting soybean, corn, et cetera. And you also have orchard farmers. And in flood years or, or excess supply years, there's not much, not much action and, and everybody gets along pretty well. Uh, but in a drought year, the dynamic changes. And uh, what, what we've seen is that the row crop farmers realize it's going to be very difficult to get a crop in this summer anyway. They let their field fallow, but they can then go divert their water allocation for that year to orchard farmers who have maybe at a minimum 10 years devoted to get their trees to maturity so they can start being productive, uh, productive assets. Uh, so the orchard farmers are, are more than happy to pay a premium for that water at that point in time in order to save their orchard because they, they, they don't want to lose the trees and, and have another 10 years to get back up to, to productive status. And that, that all happens without, uh, you know, that happens between individual stakeholders and those, uh, the water master and the, the irrigation district are, are more, more just referees to ensure a, a level playing field. Yeah. So uh, those those kind of things, I think, I, like I said, I don't have a silver bullet, uh, but uh, I think the more more things like that we can explore and encourage, uh, the better off we'll be. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's really these are these are these are thorny questions and thorny issues, uh, and and we need smart people like you thinking about them. And maybe you know your statements will spark a listener's thoughts about how to how to you know attack this. And maybe we do you know kind of almost inadvertently get someone who can contribute to, to finding the solution. We've, we've kind of danced around affordability. We've kind of mentioned it in passing. Any, any thoughts on uh, how full price water, you know, the, if, if that water is valued at full price, how does that, how does that impact affordability? Uh, well, the full, I mean, the full costing at wholesale is very different than retail is very different than tiered, pricing structures with and I know you've had a lot of very very uh, smart guests that talk that know much more about the utility pricing than I do um, so I, I, I don't I don't want to speak out of class, out of school but uh, I think it, it more broadly anytime you provide value or assign value to the resource you get uh, you bring to bear more technologies more strategies that make it more affordable and for more people. And so, of course, I mean, the tiered pricing or inverted rate structures are, are great mechanisms that I think we're seeing adopted more and more, which goes a long way to, you know, the, the health and hygiene water, you know, your first, first hundred gallons a day or, or whatever it is. Um, that value is, of course, very different than the the green on the 18th hole uh, (laughs) yeah so and of course that changes changes at different points in time but uh, as i mentioned earlier with the p3s the if you can assign value to a resource that also is a big incentive to have that private sector come in either with technology or 
uh, or, or regulatory strategies to increase the overall supply, whether that's facilitating more inland brackish desalination facilities, whether that's aquifer storage and recovery, capturing floodwaters uh, during times of excess water supply and storing them for times of drought. Uh, but that's all of those things go to increasing the supply for the broader ecosystem, which in turn will make everything more affordable uh, for, for everybody in that ecosystem. Right, right. Well, you know, Chairman Lake, you've been absolutely terrific today. Uh, I've I really appreciate the time you've spent with us and and kind of your getting gaining your insights into the especially the financial aspects of uh, how how water infrastructure is financed and kind of the issues that go along there. Uh, for those folks, actually, let me let me ask you this: uh, Do you have a do you kind of have a leave behind message? I mean, what would you what would be your your kind of words of wisdom and in, in parting to the to the listeners? value your water, uh, explore how you can capture that value and, and make use of the change of value over time. Uh, Noah built the ark before the storm, so build it before you need it. Uh, you, only, you, you truly know the value of water when the well goes dry, and none of us want to ever be in that position. So value your water and, and build it before you need it. Terrific. I appreciate that. And uh, what are the, Hey, just a fun question. I know that uh, I, when I was down, when I was down in Austin, uh, one of your staffers, uh, Kevin, I'll just, I don't know that he wants to be identified, but Kevin uh, identified a couple of great taco joints for me. And I'm just kind of curious and, and they, and, and they were real good. So what's, where, where do you find the best tacos in Austin? I will say Dave, the, the, when it comes to tacos, the journey is as important as the destination. <laughs> <laughs> take your time in evaluating these things uh but but for my money uh i i, I love rosita's al pastor over on the east side it, it is uh right next to the bingo hall has a fantastic setup uh everything the salsas are great uh but most importantly their uh namesake al pastor tacos are the best in town awesome well i will next, next time you're in austin i'll i'll uh Make sure we get you over there. All right. That, that'd be great. I, I'll make that trip to Austin soon then. Um, well, again, Chairman Lake, you've been, you've been fantastic. I really appreciate the time you spent with us. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you, find out more about the Texas Water Development Board, where can they go to get that information? The best spot to go is our website, www.twdb.texas.gov. From there, you can email me or our fellow, my fellow board members, uh, we, we've got a whole range of updates you can sign up for. Uh, most importantly, uh, you can access our interactive version of the state water plan, uh, which, is, which is a absolutely incredible resource for anybody interested in long-term water planning. It's, it, it's a great tool that allows you to look at a 30,000-foot view of the entire state and uh, sitting there on your desktop you can or your phone, you can drill down into the most granular level of, of what every single of the, of the thousands of water suppliers across the state of Texas, you can see what every single one of them, uh, existing supply is, future supply, existing demand, future demand over the next uh, 50 years is. You can see the water supply strategies they've identified to, to meet their future demand. Uh, it's, it's a tremendous resource. I would highly recommend, uh, like I said, any, anybody interested in, in water and and water planning. 
Awesome. Well, again, uh, Pete, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. I'll see you in Austin. You bet. See you, Peyton. Bye. What a great job by Chairman Lake. Really appreciate his time. Uh, he's a busy guy, and he took a lot of time to sit down and talk with us. So I really appreciate it, especially he had some fantastic insights. And I hope you hope you caught some of those, especially how private capital, I thought that was the biggest thing, how private capital, where the opportunities are in Texas. I thought that was really interesting, uh, what, what what he thought uh, where some of those those opportunities were for private capital. Well, let us know what you thought about the podcast. Uh, go to the show notes and leave your comments, or you can email me. Uh, it's david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. That's a little different email, right? It's david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And the last name spelled M-C-G-I-M as in Mary, P as in Paul, S-E-Y. So david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. That's how the best way to get in touch with me. Um, you can also tweet at me. My handle is at DTM1993. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. Uh, and you can find it online. Just Google the water values podcast and the site will pop up. Well, thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Water Values Podcast. Uh, again, Chairman Lake was fantastic. Reese Tisdale was really good uh, and as fantastic as always in his Bluefield on Tap segment. And I just, again, want to thank our sponsors of the Water Values Podcast. Our sponsors, again, include the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, Intera, and Xylem. A fantastic group of sponsors. Thank you all so, so much. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.